talk this afternoon is on the discourse dealing and attending to our projections. Earlier on uh, today I spoke a little bit about uh, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis and the Dharma. I do want to make it, of course, absolutely uh, clear with regard to this that though enormous regard and uh, affection for this uh, Western contemporary tradition, probably 100 years old or so, but in terms of the exploration of life, can't, I would say, cannot possibly be said to be in the same depth of exploration that the Dharma encourages us to engage in. And when one just reflects a little bit with regard to uh, the Dharma, not only is it a challenge to all the constructions of the, every single state of mind which is possible, it's also an extraordinary invitation to run so deep inside of oneself that one finds places of profound absorption, extraordinary depth of joy and love, tremendous gratitude and appreciation. And it follows it further through deeply to such shifts of perception and consciousness that realms are opened up which are rare for a human being to have access to, formless, immeasurable, seemingly without any kind of limit at all, and still probing very deeply into the being, emancipate and open up the heart to such a degree that it opens up tremendous unstoppable love for all beings on the air, on the ground and in the water. And still says that's not enough. And still says there's more to explore in the depth of realization which is liberating that one who knows things, the truth of things as they are, has resolved all suffering and knows the true nature of things. Frankly, psychotherapy is not in that league. It's helpful, it's important, it's significant, it's invaluable for helping to deal with personal stories, to help understand the self, to make a valuable contribution to a way of being which is integrated and mature and seasoned and handling personal relationships among the past, present and future well. Dharma actually begins in its best sense and its best tradition for those who are emotionally very well adjusted. But it also embraces and looks at the whole movement of the self from its most hellish and conflicting state of mind all the, through the whole spectrum of dukkha from the great hell of suffering right through to the momentary unsatisfactoriness of the appearance of I and where it lands and falls. 
And in that respect, with his emphasis on a utterly awakened life, a tremendous uh, exploration of finding out wisdom and compassion, the encouragement to go into great solitude and aloneness, to really know what renunciation is truly all about, and perhaps most importantly of all, to know the deathless. This is what the Dharma is teaching. I regard it as incomparable on this earth. And it's not the responsibility, nor is it the duty, nor possibly the access. In many of the conventions of our great army of counsellors who do wonderful work, priests and rabbis and psychologists and therapists, to be able to point to what I've just spoken to you about. But the Dharma does. And that puts it into a very challenging place for all of us every day of our life, happy or not, well-adjusted or not. This is the extraordinary thing about it. And that's why the Buddha himself, not just poor Christopher, the Buddha, Buddha himself, spoke of the incomparable Dharma because of its tremendous capacity to liberate, to really awaken, to know a fulfillment with life that's unshakable every day, to wake up with it every day, to go to bed with this fulfillment every day. Nothing is missing, nothing is lacking. It's a beautiful thing to explore. And it requires, as we all know, total fulfillment tends to require total commitment, total dedication for it. But whew, what a way to live. All right, sermon over. Here the Buddha gives uh, um, the teachings and he uses this word, papancha, P-A-P-A-N-C-A. -A. It has a kind of twofold meaning, and the nearest English equivalent to this is projections. And my goodness me, <laughs> we the poor human species have the capacity to engage in projections which tell us, in the activity of the projections, more about the subject who is projecting than the object which is projected upon. Do we forget this? Oh, do we forget this? Do we pay a price for this and thus the poor object or person or place or situation have to bear the weight and this poor world that we're living in is, as it were, living under the weight of projections, as it were. And one does, what is the dynamic that goes on with all of this? And this uh, discourse of the Buddha, just remember this was given two and a half thousand years ago, even if it was never spoken, Certainly, two, around 2,200 years ago, it was certainly written down. There's mountains of evidence to show that. 
Whoever put this to there had some extraordinary insight. And as I have often felt with the text for a moment or two, with all the depth in the text, nobody could have thought this up. Nobody could have thought up and tracked the four jhanas without experiencing them. It's not possible. Nobody could have tasted and known of the formless realms of infinite space and infinite consciousness, etc., without experiencing and knowing exactly what's being written and exactly how it does go from subtle. The mind can't think these things up. Nor in the extraordinary power of the heart to open up so it's limitless in its capacity to embrace. Experience became language into form. Someone or some, some time ago, had such realizations wanting to share it with humanity. And when one reads the text, with a few exceptions, perhaps cultural, perhaps social, I don't know, but the body of it runs through profound experience again and again. And the deeper one goes, the deeper the authority of the, of the experience. So in this one, it's exploring at different levels. This whole movement in the inner life of projection and how that happens and what's going on with us. And remember, all the teachings, to repeat a little bit, is a contribution to waking us up, to seeing clearly, to coming out of the transfixions of I, me, and my. And therefore making a shift to seeing things dependently arising in a process. And that is to come out of the I, me, and my. And so, good uh, talk. As you can see, I'm a fan of this talk. Um, begins with Papancha, this uh, projections, and there are three primary areas that it tends to manifest. And it's up to us who to be interested in what the hell is going on with our inner life and the state of it to take tremendous notice of these three areas. The first one is the relationship that arises to that which comes to our senses or to consciousness in It's called a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste and a touch and maybe a feeling and thought inside. Once it has arisen and touched us, Papancha can have a field day with it. Projections can have a field day. That means it can grow, mind can go crazy once any object has touched the senses. And this meeting drives the world mad. So, there is what is out there there is the bare object. Let's, let's we use eyes for a moment. We see something or someone. Could be the pilgrimage to the shopping mall. Could be the beautiful woman, the handsome man, 
the ninth house in the countryside, whatever and the road event is the meeting of the colors, the bare impression upon the eye. And almost immediately a perception rises, it recognizes. And some, the color, the perception, and the feelings there. What does the mind make of it? And in that meeting, that engagement, what's out there is essentially the raw material, the bare actuality. But it's not cold. It's not a nothingness. It does have the potency in the interaction to generate, let's say, a pleasant feeling. I open my eyes and I see lovely colours, nice people, or whatever it might be. It definitely, the experience is definitely pleasant. And the pleasantness is through the interaction. And maybe a pretty cold-minded dedicator, dedicator, meditator, and dedicator, <laughs> but anyway, meditator, and I say, oh, it's all in me. Oh, no, it's not. As the Buddha himself commented on the beautiful sight, commented on the beautiful sound of music, commented on the beautiful flower, uh, the, the, the lotus, etc., etc. So we're not trying to negate that, but we want to see what else do we make of it. And when papancha arises, that means the projections or investment, the movement of the mind begins to perceive, this is important, this point, begins to perceive more than what's actually there. We begin to attribute, in this case, the sight, with qualities which it inherently doesn't have, but we actually think it does. And we think it does so strongly, we're persuaded by it. Oh, nightmare. Even in the movement, let's say, some of us, I like music. I go to the CD shop and someone has uh, suggested to me, oh, Christopher, buy this CD. Even though there is the movement, there is some memory, I've listened to this artist before. There is a connection. I see the CD. The ear listens to it, perhaps, as one candy stays in the shop. And there is pleasurable feeling which arises. All of that interaction in itself doesn't make propensity. In itself. But when there is some compelling I must have and there is some frustration and it's no longer in the shop and there is reactivity going on inside the movement has invested the object with an importance that it doesn't have 
because it's upset the balance of the mind. So movement towards doesn't necessarily mean papancha. When there is the wisdom behind it in which, this is important here, having or not having doesn't matter one iota. But when it begins to matter and there is some dependency on getting what I want, Papancha is now beginning to distort the relationship. It's entered into the field, entered into the dynamic, 